0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guest. On Realty Speak today, I am pleased to be talking with Blake Janover, founder and CEO of Janover Ventures. Thanks for joining us today on Realty Speak, Blake.
1: Bill, really excited. Admire your show and what you do. I'm looking forward to this conversation.
0: Well, great to have you here today, Blake. And today, which happens to be episode 20, yay! I think that's a milestone. We are remote. And while I'm in the die section, also known as the Financial District of Manhattan, with a view of some really cool buildings, I understand that you are looking at some waterfront somewhere in Florida.
1: That's right. Today I am in Highland Beach, which is a really cute town between Boca Raton and Delray Beach on the ocean. So I'm facing west with a beautiful view of the intracoastal.
0: All right. So we have very opposing views, but we don't have opposing views you and i actually really think alike because when we talked prior to this call i learned some things about the way you do business and how they're consistent with the way i like to do business i want to talk a little bit about your company and how it evolved i understand that uh, you were a residential mortgage broker and you evolved to a direct lender in the early 2000s and now Uh, Here in 2019, you're firmly entrenched in the commercial lending space, and not only do you provide the debt portion of the capital stack, but you advise your clients, and you and your team not only uses, but develops technology to automate the lending process. And On our last call leading up to this episode, you shared with me that while technology helps There is still no substitute for listening, advising, and then executing the transaction. So your client will ultimately accomplish their desired best outcome. And while we have a lot of very engaging topics to chat about today around debt and the capital stack, Blake, first, please share with our listeners the story of your startup in lending and the evolution to what Jano Revenges is today.
1: It was an exciting start in the middle stages of the last cycle. We started in the early 2000s. It was an adventure to say the least. Started in the business by selling leads and doing digital marketing to a mortgage brokerage company. I got into the digital marketing space before digital marketing was even a thing. I sold a lead list and it was 1 million records. And I sold it at the time for something like $10,000. And to me, it was just a lot of money. And I didn't understand why somebody paid so much money for a list of names. So I went to go work for them. And I elevated very quickly from not knowing anything to being the top salesperson on the floor. One thing led to another. I broke off. I started my own company. And The story there was uh, I had opened up a Yellow Pages and I cold called mortgage companies and banks out of the Yellow Pages and I said, hi, my name's Blake. I'm going to open up a branch of your mortgage lending company out of my apartment. I don't have my mortgage broker's license yet, but I'm going to get one and I'm going to make you guys a lot of money and then I'm going to break off and start my own thing.
0: You're actually telling them that you're going to help them grow and earn. But once you get to the point where you can be self-employed, you're going to go ahead and do that? talk about transparency.
1: Yeah. And you spoke about listening. The typical salesperson archetype has a stigma associated with it. And it's generally something to the tune of somebody's trying to sell you something, somebody's trying to bamboozle you, and they're trying to hide things from you. And that stigma carries. One of the great ways to cross that chasm is with honesty. Let me explain my thought process really briefly. And I know we're a little off subject, but I do think it's an important thing to address for anybody listening
0: that does anything with with sales. Well, I think everybody's in sales to some respect. Regardless of what it is you do, either independently as a self-employed person or if you're working for somebody else, you are in some form of sales because you're representing the product or service of that organization in some capacity. And even though you might not be client-facing, It is important that you understand these principles that you're talking about today. So I think all our listeners are really appreciating this. So please go on.
1: Thanks, Bill. The greatest CEOs of all time are all great salesmen. They're not engineers. They're not scientists. Steve Jobs wasn't an engineer. He was a salesman. He built the reality distortion field. And sales happens if you're an engineer and you want to sell a new product idea to your boss. It happens if you're at the bar and you're trying to convince somebody to go on a date with you, it happens everywhere. In our case, it happens with selling multifamily loans or commercial mortgages. The concept behind honesty is that if you approach somebody and tell them a story that's too good to be true, or you only show the rosy side of that story, you open yourself up to the most dangerous obstacle a salesperson can encounter. The creativity of the client, of the person that you're selling to, they will create a worst case scenario in their head that is very hard to overcome. Their worst case scenario will always be exponentially worse than what the real worst case scenario is. Let me give you an example. If I'm talking to a client and they ask me how long it takes to close, if I tell them we can close really fast, we could close in a couple weeks, they're going to smell the BS and they're going to create a scenario of where maybe we won't close. Maybe it'll drag on for months. But if we set an honest and realistic expectation and say, hey, worst case scenario is probably 60 days. Best case scenario is probably 30. Let's work hard for 30, plan for 60, and maybe we'll land at 45. There's no room for the client to create a three-headed fire belching dragon of no clothes and no execution. I've always found that being transparent mitigates the creative guard created by a client and I was ambitious. So when I was starting my mortgage company and I was calling to open up a branch out of the Yellow Pages, I told everyone, I said, I'm going to make this much money. And and then after a certain period of time, I'm going to go off on my own. I'm going to make you a bunch of money and you're going to empower me to get to the next step in my career. And that's just how it went. Everybody laughed at me for maybe two or three days. I made hundreds of phone calls, maybe a thousand. And one guy said to me, wow, okay, I'm listening. And we met at a Starbucks. His name was Brad. And Brad gave me a shot. Brad gave a young, ambitious, knucklehead kid with unbelievable work ethic and radical honesty a shot. And I took it. I did unbelievably well. I had all my buddies working for me in my apartment. We had a big dining room table and uh, all these CRT monitors on it. And everybody would sleep in the apartment and the next morning we would wake up and start again and we would work until midnight so we could call California until nine PM and that evolved and we ultimately built a pretty big shop in Boca and prior to market crash we definitely evolved. So we became a direct lender, we opened up warehouse lines of credit. We were table funding loans and then we were closing loans in our own name and keeping them in our portfolio and selling them in uh, tranches to to other lenders. At that time, we started our commercial real estate advisory practice. The first deal I did was very early on, and it was really exciting. It was, it was complicated. It had all these layers to it. There were all these stories. There were many tenants and many units and owners and partners and complications that involved bankruptcies and trustees, and, and I made a lot of money too, and I added a lot of value, and it was really exciting. I kept at that shortly thereafter. I arranged a $20 million senior loan with a preferred equity subordinate piece of debt and an LP on top of it. I think I think the total is probably $23 or $24 million altogether for the entire capital stack to acquire and ultimately recapitalize a office building and convert it to office condo in Miami Gardens. It was such an adventure.
0: The excitement of dealing with a multi-layered, complicated commercial lending structure that involved a lot of different pieces, based on the story you just shared with us, you got to the other side of the fence, and you closed it, and you enabled that group of people that were purchasing that office building to do what they wanted to do, which was acquire it, and then convert it to condos and obviously sell out those condos and I'm sure they made a handsome profit.
1: I really enjoyed the complexities and the story and the challenges and the creativity that was involved in a complicated transaction like that. And it had a impact on my personal balance sheet and, and my business balance sheet, which started the turn of the flywheel and allowed us to grow. However, that flywheel stopped in its tracks when credit markets froze. And I had a bunch of loans on my warehouse facility and all the warehouse facilities were pulled and none of the banks wanted to buy the loans. And then the flywheel moved in the other direction. And I learned a lot of really valuable lessons at a very young age. And I still can taste the heartburn from 2008 today. But I thought, which I learned isn't a thing, Uh, You don't fight against a tidal wave. Uh, You either ride it or you get out of the way. And it was hard to get out of the way of that one, especially when I was trying to fight it head on. I was the sole owner, and I personally guaranteed all my debt, all my credit lines, everything that I did. And I thought I was smarter than I was. I thought I was invincible. I thought thought whatever last month's revenue was would be my new minimum going forward, and I really levered up. So I shot up like a rocket ship, and then I crashed like something that crashes harder than a crashing rocket ship.
0: So, you know, we were talking about transparency before, and I really appreciate your transparency and sharing this difficult part of your story and past and evolution from pre- financial crisis to post-financial crisis with our listeners. That's a great example of transparency. So what happens next? All right, now things start to recover. How do you recover? What brings you to where you and your team are today?
1: Well, when the credit markets froze and things fell apart, I spent many years in a consumer advocacy debt negotiation, business, and industry. I built a large company. I spent many years in the Dominican Republic, owning and operating one of the largest call centers in the Americas. And I stayed very in tune with consumer capital markets. The construction, purchase, and acquisition Market for commercial real estate was meaningfully frozen for a long time. And during that period of time, I built a couple of companies. I sold one of them and I then spent a year or two, something in between there, living in a fishing village. Around that time, I reconnected with Brad. If you're listening, Brad, hi, Brad, who told me, Hey, Blake, we're really super active in multifamily financing and we're doing great. It's really a growth market. I've always been and always will be uh, an absolute geek for all things digital media and digital marketing. I've been at the crossroads of being deeply engaged with capital markets and digital media so when he and I started talking about multifamily financing uh, it was right around the time that Google started adopting ntlds which are these new top level domains uh, google bought google.xyz and people started having all of these very very early stages of these funky new alternatives to .com and i bought multifamily.loans and built it whilst on a hammock in the middle of nowhere And the phone started to ring and people were calling me and they were saying, Hey, I'm looking for a $30 million HUD 232 insured uh, healthcare loan. Can you help me out? And I would say, yes. But in the background you would hear because I had chickens and roosters in the backyard and I'm an honest guy. So I said, yeah, this is where I am. I work for my villa slash cabin in the middle of nowhere and uh, people didn't seem to take it seriously. So ultimately, I was engaged, and this is kind of how I came back into the fold stateside. I was engaged as a partner, as a general partner, to acquire land in Miami and to ultimately build 133 apartments there. And I raised all the debt and the equity for that, and I used that as an excuse to come back full-time into commercial and multifamily real estate finance, where I've always been and part of my heart. And I started rebuilding our business and our small empire
0: that was some story, Blake. Wow. Way more than uh, than I anticipated, but very, very happy to have heard it. Thanks for sharing that. I really appreciate it. And I really look forward to the valuable insights that you're going to bestow on us today from a very, very unique perspective that is different than maybe a lot of other people that are in the lending space. So how about we get started?
1: <laughs> yeah, let's start. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. As if that's not a start.
1: Right. We're two days into this conversation. Now let's start.
0: So what is a capital stack? Tell us what a capital stack is. Think of a capital stack as Legos. You're building a tower
1: and there's different Legos that stack upon different Legos. The most simple capital stack is a two Lego structure. First Lego is senior debt and the second Lego is equity. If you want to build a different kind of capital stack, a more complicated one, The first Lego may be senior debt, the second one may be mezzanine financing, and the third one may be equity. If you wanted to build that a little further, the first Lego may be senior, the second Lego may be mezzanine, third Lego may be limited partnership equity, and the fourth Lego may be general partnership equity. But a capital stack is essentially the stack of capital that makes up the total capitalization of the transaction. The total capital stack on a construction project, for example, would be the total costs, the land plus the soft costs plus the hard costs. So a capital stack is the total accumulation of all that capital and and then what structure it
0: sits. The sources and the uses. That's right. The sources and the uses. So you touch a little bit on the types of debt. So you have senior debt. You have mezzanine debt. You could have you know, raising capital from other people in a limited partnership?
1: The three pieces of the capital stack wouldn't be all necessarily debt. It would be senior debt, mezzanine financing, which is generally a hybrid debt instrument, and then equity. And equity can be straight equity. It could be a debt instrument. It could be a hybrid. There's a lot of variables and alternatives there.
0: Right. And then are you advising on everything and providing everything or are you just providing either senior or mezzanine or maybe both?
1: We have done it all. Right now, we're narrowing our focus where we are generally just doing senior debt advisory. We are very, very selectively still doing some mezzanine preferred equity and LP equity advisory work.
0: Right. But if someone came to you and they were looking for senior debt and they had questions about these other aspects of the capital stack, you could certainly point them in the right direction.
1: And we certainly would. And that's part of our value is we understand commercial real estate capital structures. We know what the market is. So I had a client recently um, who the deal that he was doing, wasn't a fit for us. It wasn't our highest and best use, but it was something that we understood really well. And I told them, I said, listen, no charge, no money, nothing. When you get quotes, when you get term sheets, and there's something that you're seriously considering, send it to me and I will give you honest, valuable, candid feedback and some ammunition for you to fire back with. It's easy for me because it's what I do. It's what I know the list of things that I don't know and that I don't do is very long. But in that small space of things that I that I do, I'm really good at them. And I'm happy to, to share and help wherever I can.
0: You had mentioned before being a direct lender, having a warehouse line where you could actually close the loans in your own name and then sell those loans to somebody who would eventually put them into their portfolio or securitize them and sell them in the secondary mortgage market they might retain the servicing then use the word lending broker or mortgage advisor what's the difference between a direct lender and a lending broker and why do people need to know this difference
1: a lender especially in multifamily and commercial real estate generally generally makes a loan securitize it or sells it and keeps the servicing rights. That's the case when it comes to CMBS, Fannie, Freddie, FHA.
0: When you say CMBS, Fannie, Freddie, FHA...
1: Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are well-known as residential lenders, but they're the biggest multifamily lenders in the country as well. And they buy the debt on the secondary market. CMBS stands for Commercial Mortgage Backed Securities, and these are Loans that are originated, put into a pool, and then
0: securitized. Who would put together a pool of CMBS loans?
1: Deutsche Bank and banks like this are huge CMBS originators. But there's also specialty CMBS originators that are really great to work with because they're not jacks of all trade. They, trade. they do one thing really well. So there's a lot of them out there like Ladder Capital, Rialto, Benefit Street Partners. There's a long list. All they do is CMBS all day, every day.
0: So when they're doing CMBS, so that's commercial mortgage-backed securities, they're basically creating a pool of money that's going to be lent at specific terms. And then they're taking that pool, securitizing it, and then selling it as an investment to investors that uh, want to buy into the yield that comes from that pool of loans is that correct
1: in a nutshell while diversifying their risk right because one share carries a pro rata interest in a pool of loans and a pool of asset classes over various risk profiles the thing that making an effort to distill is that not all lenders are actually really making and keeping loans so the the agency, Fannie Freddie, the FHA,
0: Federal Housing Administration. That's right.
1: The, the CMBS, these guys securitize it and then they keep the servicing rights. And then there's balance sheet guys like banks and like life insurance companies that keep the paper on their books. And there's various other sources too, right? But you had asked me the difference between a lender and a lending broker. And I said, well, let me tell you there's the difference between a lender, a broker, and an advisor. So, so that's a lender. So lenders. Have specific pools of products, and there are dozens upon dozens of products and subcategories of products. There's a dozen different kinds of Fannie Mae loans, or a dozen different ways you can use a Fannie Mae loan. But each lender may have only a small pool of individual products. So if you go to a CMBS lender, you are only going to get a CMBS quote. Now, a broker, a good broker, has a lot of relationships, and they look at a deal and they broker the loan. They'll say, okay, you go to this lender, they're going to give you a good deal, and that broker might do a little bit of work, uh, and they're going to pass it along. And that's good. It has, it has value. If you have a smart brokerage shop that understands the market and has a big Rolodex, uh, of course, not a real Rolodex because people don't have those anymore, unless you do, Bill, no disrespect.
0: Oh, no. I am so technologically adept. I am pretty much 98% paperless. I'll
1: tell you what, I am very tech forward, but on my desk is a legal size yellow notepad, and I have a number two pencil and a pencil sharpener. And I think it's mostly about nostalgia, but still I do have it. Anyway, off topic. So an advisor, an advisor is is the best if you can find a good advisor. And there's lots of good advisors out there, and there's lots of not advisors disguised as advisors. So... What an advisor would do is an advisor would say, okay, what's the story? What are the goals? What's the background? What do you want to achieve? What's the business plan? What are your pain points? What are the things that are most important to you? What are the things that are least important to you? And then go to their lenders that they know, go to their market that they know, and find the right products in the right pools, not the products that have the highest margin. The product that works for the client. And then some hand-holding on the documentation, making sure, not not just closing eyes and forwarding emails, right? Because there's just a lot of that that happens, and it's not a value add. So the value add happens throughout the transaction. I'll share an anecdote. I met with a client that I originated a loan for many years ago, and, and we touched base many times since he's originated the loan. Hey, Blake, do you have this appraisal? Hey, Blake, do you have a property manager? You could recommend we're pivoting property management. Hey, Blake, we're having a legal issue. Do you have somebody? And I've always been responsive. I don't answer email instantaneously anymore, but all my emails do get responded to. And we sat down for a quick breakfast and he said, you know, I just want to thank you because you told me when you originated this loan three or four years ago, you're in it. And I can count on you. And I've been able to, and I want to say thank you. And I've got a bunch of buddies that are doing the same thing. And I told them that Blake isn't transactional. General Ventures isn't transactional. They're in it for the long haul. And I think that's really important. And I think that's a differentiator between an advisor and a broker. And of course, going back to lenders, it's not always best to go straight to a lender. And by the way, a good advisor doesn't cost you anything. The lender has some kind of fee share arrangement with a big advisory shop and all that's happening is the lender is getting more volume and they're making less money per transaction, but more money overall. So a real good advisory shop isn't costing the borrower any extra money. It's only a save.
0: So what's happening is you as the advisor who is helping your client borrow based on what their needs are is being paid by the lender who eventually actually lends them the money.
1: In most cases. Sometimes banks or community banks make it difficult or or credit unions make it difficult. But again, if you're if you've got a good advisor, they're gonna negotiate, they've got a relationship with that bank, with that credit union, and they're gonna get a lower fee and a lower rate than what a borrower would get going to them directly. A good advisor will always provide that. I think there's often a stigma associated with it. Um, we were talking about stigmas earlier with salespeople. I think there's a stigma associated with a broker or an advisor, which is that they cost a point or whatever the whatever the cost is. And the truth is, is that the good ones don't cost anything. The good ones are only saving you money in rate, terms, fees, prepayment penalties, amortization, Cash flow IRRs, they're they're adding value in multiple places.
0: So the net cost, when you look at the big picture, is zero or less.
1: It better be a lot less, otherwise that advisor isn't worth their salt, or they should pass on the deal. If you can't add deep value as an advisor, you shouldn't do it.
0: Blake, that was a very very comprehensive explanation of the difference between lender. Broker and advisor, broker and advisor being the same thing, but there being a difference in terms of what the outcome might be. And I know that you wanted to talk about the different available options across Fannie, Freddie, CMBS, and so forth. Please tell us about that.
1: It would be my pleasure. It's a really important topic to touch on because it's deeply misunderstood. There's a couple products that are worth discussing when it comes to market rate multifamily financing. One of the many misconceptions is that FHA insured debt, HUD debt, is only for affordable properties. That is absolutely a misconception. HUD provides for one of the most competitive platforms for financing market rate multifamily property in the world. Talking about HUD section 223F insurance, that provides insurance, which ultimately is the instrument by which you obtain financing for market rate stabilized multifamily property. You can use this for any loan amount. I think generally because of some of the costs associated with it, it makes sense from 2 million and up. But the short story is it provides for 85% LTV for market rate properties. LTV stands for loan to value ratios. For every million dollars of property value, HUD 223F insured debt provides $850,000 of loan proceeds. Leverage is up to 85%. Loans are 35 years fixed and fully amortizing, subject to the remaining economic life of the property. And interest rates are super competitive. One of the drawbacks is that they do take longer to close, so it may not make sense on a purchase, but it's an excellent option for a refinance. Generally speaking, they can take up to 150 days or so to close. I would argue that the most exciting product and the most powerful multifamily financing instrument for long-term multifamily construction builders. Exciting is a relative term, right? Because what's exciting for me may not be exciting for you, but I am deeply and genuinely excited by HUD 221D4 insured debt. HUD 221D4 debt is by far the most competitive product when it comes time to building market rate multifamily property. Now, it's not the most competitive product for merchant builders. Merchant builders are people that build to flip, right? They build, they lease up, and they sell immediately. But for those that are building and holding property long-term, there's nothing like SHA-insured 221-D4 debt. Leverage is up to 85% of total project cost it's up to 85% LTC. The loans are non-recourse. 223F is non-recourse also, but 221D4 is non-recourse. Non-recourse with standard carve-outs. I'll explain carve-outs in a moment. Rates are super competitive and the loans are 40 years fixed and fully amortizing plus an additional two to three years fixed interest only during the construction period. This is The ultimate mitigant to recourse, future interest rate risk, having to take more equity out. This is the ultimate mitigant to future interest rate risk, recourse risk, the need for equity by levering non recourse debt, cash flow with a 40 year amortization. These loans are so powerful and misunderstood. I remember when I started in this business a long time ago that they were known for taking 24 to 36 months to close and then sometimes not closing. It's a lot better now. And if you have the right advisor, the right lender, the right team, 221B4 insured debt can close in seven to 10 months. And that's really fast, especially when you have to consider when it's time to build, there's all kinds of things that have to happen from zoning to entitlements to plan, to design review boards. So it's really not that painful. If you're not under a massive time constraint and you're not trying to flip the property or recapitalize the moment it stabilizes, there's nothing like HUD-insured multifamily construction debt.
0: Blake, if a developer was going to use this financing for the construction, they would first complete their capital stack for acquisition in other ways, and then take out that debt with this construction loan. This And it's not really a construction loan, it's actually permanent financing. Most of the time, construction loan is temporary, it's interest only, and then it gets taken out with permanent financing. But what you're saying is that they can acquire the land with different set of circumstances in the capital stack. And then while they're doing everything that they need to do to get to the point where they can put a shovel in the ground, they can execute the process to close this loan, take out that acquisition debt, and that's going to finance not only the construction, but will be the permanent loan for the life of the asset.
1: That's right. With the caveat that you don't have to acquire the land at any point. You can close the loan with the land. So you can either own the land already, free and clear. You've had it for several years and we can count the as-is value for equity, or you could acquire it with bridge debt. Or you can do what I see most people do, which is tie down the land with a deposit that eventually goes hard, a long contract, and use that time to go through the entitlement process to manage all the soft costs, and to get through their HUD commitment. And generally, the land closing can happen simultaneously with the closing of the loan. So options abound.
0: That last scenario, though, of course, requires a seller that's willing to wait the amount of time to close this HUD loan.
1: I think that you find that a lot of these HUD-insured loans are happening in smaller markets, very useful in secondary and tertiary markets. There's all kinds of both cost constraints associated with them and labor and wage controls associated with them that make them generally non-practical in large competitive urban infill markets like Manhattan. In these smaller markets, these secondary markets, these tertiary markets, I think you have sometimes less of a Bidding war for property. I see a lot of off market transactions happen with HUD 221D4 insured loans. So there's other variables at play. But yes, you do need a seller that's willing to play ball. And when they've got land that's been in their family for generations or it's in a small market that doesn't trade a lot or there's not a lot of activity from developers, even though these days, seems like every piece of land has developers bidding on it. Those are just a few of the things that lend to the ability to tie down land and control land for an extended period of time. And usually a hard deposit goes a long way after you've been through your due diligence period.
0: So these two HUD loans that you talked about, are they non-recourse or recourse? And please explain to the listeners what recourse and non-recourse means.
1: So these loans are non-recourse with standard carve-outs, and that generally applies to most Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, CMBS, FHA, and and a lot of life company debt. It's important to talk about the carve-outs. A recourse loan is a loan in which the key principles of the borrower, the borrower being the single asset entity, the SAE or the SPE, the special purpose entity, generally an LLC set up just to own and operate that individual property. So it's when the key principles sign personal guarantees and those personal guarantees say that if something goes sideways, if the lender has to take back the properties, they can trigger the personal guarantees and go after personal assets of the key principles of the borrower. That means your residence, your car, your jewelry, your personal bank account, your wages, whatever. Since 2008, people are less inclined to sign personal guarantees. Since we saw a lot of personal guarantees get triggered and a lot of very successful people go from 100 to zero very quickly, me being among them, not as successful as the most successful, but certainly from 100 to zero. So the way non-recourse debt works is generally speaking, it's subject to standard carve-outs or bad boy carve-outs. And these carve-outs say that there is no personal recourse to the key principles that if the lender has to take back the property, that the lender will take back the property and be responsible for operating, selling, and making themselves whole. Except for in the case of material misrepresentation on behalf of the key principles, fraud, not paying taxes, act of being a bad boy or a bad girl, which is where the expression bad boy carve-outs come from. Now, something that's really prevalent today, and that's evolved very much over the last few years, is that when a borrower, its principals, take out a non-recourse loan with certain carve-outs, that they run into a situation where the lender's counsel courtesy of lender instruction generally, slips in carve-outs or addenda to the carve-outs that really make a non-recourse loan full recourse. So they may slip in language that allows for carve-outs to be triggered for non-carve-out worthy events, like if you send your annual p and late, or something to that effect. So it's really important that when you're borrowing money from a non-recourse lender, most specifically a CNBS lender, that the borrower has retained counsel that's experienced in negotiating carve-outs and similar non-recourse financial
0: instruments. So unlike the closing table at a residential mortgage for a 1 to 4 family home, where the borrower just pretty much comes in and signs the papers the way they were prepared by the lender's attorney. In commercial lending, you do have the ability to retain counsel, to look over the paperwork and actually negotiate changes if they don't meet the expectations that you had when you were originally looking at entering into this particular loan contract.
1: You don't have the right, you have the responsibility as a borrower, the fiduciary responsibility to your investors and the responsibility to yourself to make sure that the loan documents coincide with the term sheet or the commitment that you signed. There's a lot less of this with Fannie and Freddie debt. A lot of it's very standardized, but again, in the CMBS market, there's definitely some cowboy esque activity. Now, I, this is not a criticism of CMBS. CMBS product is unbelievable. There's nothing better for particularly small balance commercial debt loans between two and ten million, for example. And if you want to lever up with non recourse commercial debt, it's great. If if it's a storied deal and storied principles, or if uh, if it's multifamily and the key principles don't hit certain net worth and liquidity hurdles that the Fannie or Freddie lender is requiring, CMBS is just an excellent tool, but it's not in a box. So every lender has their own system, counsel, loan docs, requirements, credit committees and etc. And and it includes for full recourse debt also, <laughs> because there's some full recourse lenders, there are bank lenders out there that will make a loan to you and the loan docs will have a default almost baked into it so that you are automatically in default as soon as you sign those loan docs and the lender won't trigger it. They won't use that unless one day they have to. But you're screwed from day one. And sometimes you got to sign it because you don't have an alternative or sometimes you sign it because you have a good relationship with the lender and that's just their protocol and they use laser pro docs and they just stick with it, but never going blind when borrowing a large amount of money.
0: Now you talked about retaining counsel to help a borrower with discovery on these different points. Do you assist with discovery as an advisor to some degree?
1: We are not attorneys, we are not accountants, we can't provide legal advice, we can't provide tax advice, but I'm always happy to take a look and say, that doesn't look great, or hey, you may wanna push back on that. And generally it's along with their counsel. We add the most value on business considerations Terms right, prepayment penalties, recourse, but we're certainly not getting into the minutia of the legal documents because that's just not where our expertise is. But if borrower counsel or the borrower says, "Hey, this is in the document, this statement, this clause, is this market, is this in line with what I signed on my term sheet or my commitment? Is this is this appropriate?" If we have the answer, we will give it. And generally speaking, we have the answer because we've seen this a million times
0: quick little break here realty speak fans we cover so many topics on the show and with 20 episodes there's plenty of great information and strategies that you can use but sometimes you may need more than that therefore i'm here to personally help you when you have more questions around buying or holding or selling your valuable apartment building real estate Every transaction is different, and so are the people involved. A successful outcome will depend on the execution, proper planning. With decades, in the industry, in the areas of brokerage, construction, debt capital, and appraisal, I can professionally guide you at any point in the cycle of acquisition, your existing portfolio, or the sale of your multifamily and multifamily mixed-use real estate. Call me. It's just that easy to get the information you need to know when you need to know it. Now, the number? It's 917 232 8529. What else can I say? Real estate is in my DNA. And now back to the show. Blake, you mentioned uh, prepayment penalties. Talk to us a little bit about what they are, the different types and what a borrower can expect. And is there a way to not have prepayment penalties?
1: Yes, there's a way. So with non-recourse securitized type debt, if you want to get a 10-year fixed rate, 30-year fixed rate, fully amortizing loan with a really competitive interest rate, expect a prepayment penalty. The higher the prepayment penalty, the lower your rate. For example, let's talk about Freddie small balance loans. So on Freddie small balance loans and the new Freddie small balance platform is now called Optigo. You can take yield maintenance as a prepayment penalty by default. And yield maintenance is essentially, think of it as call protection, that as you're in the loan borrowing the money that the lender's investment, the loan being that investment, that their yield is protected. So at any point you pay off the loan, they're going to earn the balance of their yield or that spread over uh, whatever the corresponding treasury is. So if there's five years left on the loan, maybe that, uh, and they're earning X interest rate on your loan, then you're going to pay the spread over that five, four, three, two, one-year treasury. But the thing is, if you want to navigate to a step-down prepayment penalty, step-down prepayment penalty may be 555-444-333-222-111. I don't know if I got to 10 yet, but I might have. Uh, or it might be ten nine eight seven six five four three two one, and these are types of step down prepayment
0: penalties. On a step down, give us an example of that. Let's say you had a uh, four three two one. What happens in the four? What happens in the three? What happens in the two, and so forth and so on.
1: Let's say you had a five year loan with a five year step down. Your prepayment penalty for paying off the loan, or in the case of agency, paying down principal refinancing selling would be 5% the first year, 5% of the loan amount, 4% of the loan amount the second year, 3% of the loan amount the third year, 2% of the loan amount the fourth year, 1% of the loan amount fifth year. And generally in the last 90 days or so, there is no prepayment penalty.
0: Blake, so far we've talked about the step-down prepayment penalty, the yield maintenance prepayment penalty. What about defeasance?
1: Defeasance is really common in CMBS financing, but these days we're doing a lot more of yield maintenance. We can even pivot from defeasance to yield maintenance. And I think something that's valuable to touch on is the fact that most of these securitized loans are assumable for a reasonable fee sometimes 1%, sometimes less. And that means that if you want to sell your property, you can essentially pass that senior debt on to the new borrower. In the event that interest rates are higher in the future and you've got this nifty 4% 30-year fixed rate loan right now, somebody in the future in that 8% interest rate environment can create an enormous amount of arbitrage, interest rate arbitrage, right? They could buy your property at Whatever the market cap rate is, whatever their market cash on cash is, uh, or whatever the cash on cash is that's provided by that investment. But they can also pick up your, your senior mortgage rate that you originated back when interest rates were next to nothing. Fannie Mae, for example, provides supplemental financings uh, at market rates. So a buyer could come in and they could take over this really attractive senior and they can layer Fannie Mae's supplemental debt on top of it. I'd like to talk for a moment or so about the differences between Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac small balance loans.
0: And when you say small balance, what do you mean by small balance?
1: 750000 to $7 million. And saying it out loud almost sometimes sounds offensive, right? Like somebody's borrowing $5 million and they're calling it small. But the truth is, is that these broad capital market solutions really weren't available to small investors before. You had to be a middle market investor, a middle market owner operator. You had to have a $20 million loan, a $50 million property in order to get your hands on this super competitive, high leverage, low interest rate, non-recourse financing. Everybody else just went to their local banks and they took a five-year fixed, 25-year amortization, full recourse, 70% LTV loan. It's based on their global cash flow and their personal tax returns and blah, blah, blah. And now these small investors and operators, these guys that aren't monsters like Cortland or related, well, they have access to the same kind of debt that those guys do. And Fannie and Freddie have both built really excellent small balance platforms to address loans from a million to 7 million with Fannie you can generally go lower 750000 depending on the lender. It's really lender's discretion. But I want to explain a couple of the differences. Freddie Mac has a great product. They're calling it Optigo now. And the credit box is kind of narrow. But if you have a loan that fits in their credit box, a multifamily loan that fits in their credit box, and you're in a large market, think LA, New York, Miami, Portland, Austin, markets like this you will get the most competitively priced, non-recourse, low-cost leverage and debt that anybody can get. They built a very special product. You can get up to 10 years fixed on a 30-year amortization. I believe now they have terms up to 20 years where there's a recast after the 10 years. But Fannie Mae has a really special small balance product also. And that product is most powerful in either secondary and tertiary markets where you still want to achieve full leverage and get competitive pricing because Freddie Mac is less competitive in smaller markets. Their leverage comes down, their rates go up, their credit really moves based on market size first and then leverage and debt service coverage ratios and so on and so forth. Fannie is really almost market agnostic unless they've had some bad experiences in a market with foreclosures, in which case it can become pre-review. But something else that Fannie Mae has that you don't see and that most folks don't know about is that Fannie Mae will provide small balance, 30-year fixed and fully amortizing loans. Now, when you talk to most folks, they don't know that that's available for commercial property. Everybody knows that as I get a 30-year mortgage on my house, but there's 30-year mortgages available for your 30-unit multifamily property in a tiny community with a 3,000-person population, a C product with an old roof and 100% occupancy, and you can get 80% LTC 30-year fixed and fully amortizing debt today in the mid-fours.
0: That's pretty amazing.
1: That's one of the reasons I'm on your show. Part of our mission as a company is getting that message out there. There is more competitive debt than what everybody has been getting for all these years. You are a small multifamily investor. You've got a property that's worth a million, two million, three million dollars. Good for you you're an entrepreneur, you run a small business, you are the pulse of our nation, and you deserve to know what's available to you. And you should be able to use that leverage to grow, to compete with the guys that are out there that have 100 units, 500 units, 1,000 units. You should be able to take that money, take that leverage, and reinvest it into other property, reinvest it into your own property, shore up your own liquidity, remove the personal guarantees that you've given the banks because there is nobody that owns 200, 300, 500, unit portfolios that's signing personal guarantees.
0: And if they are,
1: there's a long story behind it.
0: I wasn't even aware of all that.
1: That's what I'm here for. The message here is that small multifamily developers and operators, even middle market ones that there's more out there than you know. And by keeping your head in the sand and just doing the same thing you've always done, you're gonna get the same results you've always got. And maybe they're good, but maybe there's a path of lesser resistance, a path of greater growth or less risk, and you've gotta start interacting with the market, whether it's online or through an advisor Or through another lender. Capital markets have changed and they're going to continue to evolve. And technology has allowed for big lenders to make really powerful products available to small borrowers. It wasn't so long ago that it didn't make sense to originate a million dollar loan because it takes the same amount of time to originate a million dollar loan as it does a $10 million loan. So it made no sense to allocate time capital to these small loans. But now, because of technologies, because of efficiencies, it's possible to do a very high volume of these small balance loans, and there is social impact associated with it. You're doing good as a lender, as a broker, if you're out there bringing these fancy New York capital markets financial instruments to a small town in Minnesota. You're doing something good, and you're making money. And the guy in Minnesota that's borrowing the money, well, now he's in a better universe too, and he's able to better provide for all the people that are living in this property. I get a little excited when I talk about it, but I did want to articulate it, and I'm sorry if I got a little out of hand there.
0: Not at all, uh, Blake. Matter of fact, I appreciate your passion about it, and it just shows that you should be doing what you're doing because you're doing the right thing. And it's great that you're sharing with all our listeners today that these other options exist. And while we've been talking about this, we've heard the word costs, we've heard the word pricing. Do you have a real case scenario that you can share with us today regarding the different closing costs, upfront costs, and post-closing costs that a other than prepayment penalties that a borrower will deal with during uh, the lending process
1: there's two costs to talk about there's the upfront costs and there's the cost at the closing table i do have a couple closing statements handy that i could run through that demonstrate two very different scenarios but i want to talk about upfront costs first different lenders have different upfront costs so let's talk about Fannie and Freddie. So Fannie and Freddie small balance, you could expect to pay out-of-pocket eight dollars to $12,000 of an expense deposit. That money is generally allocated towards a phase one environmental report, a comprehensive appraisal conducted by an MAI certified appraiser, a PCNA, that's a project capital needs assessment, that's equatable to a property inspection but it's very in-depth and they will look for things like life safety issues, the economic life of your roof, the foundation of the property. It's a very in-depth report. A lender will never pay for these things out of pocket, never expect them to. A smaller lender like a bank may have less requirements. They may take less upfront money. They may only take a few thousand dollars and they'll be able to conduct more reports with less capital. For a larger loan with Freddie Conventional or Fannie Dust Fannie Mae Dust which is their delegated underwriting system, they will have upwards of $30,000 deposits. And one of the things that's included in this is the initial lender legal deposit because you as a borrower are paying for the lender's legal counsel. Now, Fannie and Freddie have streamlined this and they've squeezed these lender legal costs really tight because they have boilerplate documents and systems and processes. But a place where you may run into very scary lender legal numbers are with CMBS loans. Always ask your CMBS lender to use small counsel in a small state. Otherwise, it will cost you $40,000, $30,000. I've seen a legal bill run $150,000 for legal counsel for CMBS. That's something to consider. And no lender is going to do a loan without taking money up front. Maybe a small credit union or something like that. But once you're looking at non-recourse debt, real loans, you're coming out of pocket up front for third-party reports. So you want to work with a lender that number one, has a real reputation, a verifiable reputation, because they don't want to steal your money. But if you're working with ABC specialty lender out of somewhere you've never heard of, and they want 10 grand up be careful. Who you send your money to
0: matters. I'm excited to hear you go through those closing statements and share with our listeners what the upfront costs are and which of those are refundable and non-refundable. And then, of course, what the costs are that they're going to experience at the closing. And if there are any post-closing fees or costs, what those would be. And is there anything that they get back post-closing as a result of a specific scenario happening? Please share that with us. Let
1: me do a quick rundown for you here. I'm choosing a quirky one. It's a $26 million construction loan, limited recourse. And this is at the closing table for the first draw. The lender's commitment fee was $200,000. Sounds like a lot but in this case, less than a point. Big items were $93,000 for doc stamps, $53,000 for intangible tax, a series of small miscellaneous fees all under $1,000. There was title premium of $59,000, title premiums for endorsements, $6,000, additional lien searches and other premiums, another $3,000. There were some taxes, be collected. In this case it was the remaining taxes available from that prior year's bill prorated. That was a total of fifty seven thousand plus twenty-four thousand. From there, there's additional costs that I'm gonna run you through, which is borrower vendor costs and expenses. So that included forty thousand dollars in legal for the borrower's council. It included for advisory services, $160,000 for insurance, keeping in mind that this is a nearly $50 million project. So the numbers sound large, but relatively speaking, they're all in line. Then there was the lender's due diligence expenses. Insurance review was $5,000. Phase 2 environmental report was $10,000. The appraisal was $6,500. There was an additional zoning and environmental report for a couple grand, a construction risk assessment for $6,000. Finally, there was lenders legal, which in this case was $100,000. Now there's some additional miscellaneous legal fees and costs that run through here, but that is a really good synopsis of what the costs for this loan were to close. That totaled about 1.2 million.
0: So if I take 1.2 million and I divide it by the $26 million loan amount, I get about 4.6%. Does that sound right? That sounds about right. Yeah, so as you were going through those numbers, I was cringing. <laughs> But when you do the math, 4.6% is actually pretty reasonable.
1: You also have to consider that it's not all costs associated with the closing. There's tax costs in there and insurance costs in there, and that's going for paying back taxes and forward premium. So it's not all costs with originating the loan. And once you distill it down, it's really not a huge cost relative to the size of the loan.
0: One thing I want to point out to the listeners is that different states have different taxes that may be charged in a loan transaction, depending on whether it's a sale or a refinance. Some go to the seller, some go to the purchase or borrower. And in New York State, we have something called mortgage tax. Now, I'm not going to get into the individual rates of what mortgage tax is, but you could close a loan in another state that doesn't have mortgage tax and not have that cost. So that's really not lender related, but it is a cost and something that you have to be aware of. And something else I want to point out, title insurance is different costs, different states.
1: And if you want to spend just a couple minutes, I can run down really fast a $4.4 million loan in New York and give you a quick feel for what the costs were there.
0: That would be great. I guess that would come under that category of a small balance loan.
1: Actually, this was a small bank loan. So on this particular closing, insurance items were $7,000. There was a $2,000 survey there was $88,000 origination fees. We could talk about why they were heavy on this deal. There was about 4500 in documentation, 5500 in appraisal. There was around $20,000 in title and mortgage tax. The costs were pretty low outside of origination. And to speak to origination, what happened on this deal is that in lieu of the lender charging any prepayment penalty, they increased their origination fee. The origination fee was 2% of the loan amount, but this loan carried no prepayment penalty, which is
0: something that was very important to the borrower. So when I do the math, I get 2.8%.
1: That's about right. In this case, the borrower didn't have any real estate tax bills to pay and didn't escrow insurance. The total percentage of cost as it related to the loan amount was lower.
0: Going back to the first closing statement, you had mentioned a advisory services fee of $300,000. W- whose fee was that?
1: On larger transactions, you'll see various advisors engaged from insurance to underwriting and so on. Uh, in this particular scenario, that was advisors engaged by both the family office that invested the limited partnership money into the SPE, the special purpose entity, and borrower advisory fees as well. These transactions, these large construction transactions require the services of a very broad spectrum of folks. And the services in absolute numbers aren't cheap, but as we talked about before, expressed as a percentage of total project cost, they are in fact, quite reasonable.
0: I think we calculated that at four and a half percent. And when you think about it, even including you know that kind of advisory, it's still very reasonable.
1: Particularly when the total partnership is planning on making an eight-figure return on their investment.
0: Well, that's, that's what this is all about. I invest this much today. I get back that much tomorrow. And speaking of today and tomorrow, we could go on forever, Blake. We really, really could, but that, yeah, that unfortunately is all we have time for today. I would just like to ask you before we go would you leave our listeners with the top three questions they should ask themselves? Not anybody else. What are the top three questions they should ask themselves before they start to the search for a lender?
1: So the first question is, what are my goals, risk tolerance, and what's my business plan? Is this like a long hold? Is it a flip? Is there a CapEx component? What do I want? How do I want to get there? The second question is, do I know all the products available to me and which ones are appropriate? So I make sure that I can address all of them in my search, be it CMBS, Small Balance Bridge, Life Company, Mez, so, the second question is Do I know everything available to me and which ones should I be using? And the third question, probably the most important, did I call Janover Ventures?
0: I like that third question. <laughs> like that, uh, that's good. A little shameless self promotion going on there, all right?
1: No shame here, Bill. No shame.
0: And, and of course, you know, that's perfectly fine. And with that said, you provided our listeners today with a tremendous wealth of Intel. I'm sure the Realty Speak listeners are very, very excited about what they heard today. I'm very excited about what I heard today. And thank you. Thank you so much. How can everyone get in touch with you?
1: You can email me directly at Blake at Janover dot Ventures. That's J-A-N-O-V-E-R and like Nancy, O-V-E-R dot Ventures. There's no dot com or dot net. If you look me up on LinkedIn, Blake Janover, I'm pretty active there. And you could visit our website, www.janover.ventures.
0: Listeners, I'm going to put all that in the show notes. So it'll be available to you by going to my website or looking at the show notes on your podcast app. Blake, I just want to say again, thank you very much for joining us today on Realty Speak and sharing all this valuable information.
1: Bill man, what a pleasure. Thank you. So much fun. Let's do this again really soon.
0: Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so right on the player. Just choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music or search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. And don't forget, share our show with others. Just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, you can always get all the episodes and contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.